I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services, America's first knowledge management nonprofit. This program, Because You Need to Know, is part of our mission to educate and bring awareness around knowledge management. Sister Margaret Carney is the 20th President of St. Bonaventure University and a member of the Sisters of St. Francis headquartered in Syracuse, New York. During her time as President, she has served on the boards of the Council of Independent Colleges of New York State, Alvernia University in Reading, Pennsylvania, the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and the Association of Franciscan Colleges and Universities. Her special study interests include medieval women's history, theology, policy process studies, and strategic planning. She resides in Olean, New York, and is a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Can you tell me where you are at as a nonprofit? This school is a nonprofit, correct? Yes. So can you explain to me the parameters of you've been here a, f a long time, you've been at the controls for quite a while, your viewpoint is very acute to exactly what's going on. So I'm interested to know how does this nonprofit work here in Western New York State? Well, as a nonprofit higher ed institution, we depend on the revenue that comes from students paying tuition and fees, room and board, to the university. Our food service is separately incorporated, so we don't receive direct income from that. That means we're completely dependent on achieving a certain number of students enrolling each year, both as undergraduates and as graduates. If there's a major fluctuation in that number, then there is a major fluctuation in our annual budget. What offsets that is the fact that we also, by reason of having great donors and benefactors and alums who want to pay it forward, um, people contribute to us on an annual basis and for special campaigns so that we have an endowment that every year throws off in interest a certain amount of money that will allow us to make up the inevitable deficits between rising costs, just for example, insurance, utilities, um, legal fees, and the income that we're getting from tuition, which we try to keep at a relatively low rate of increase. And then the last part of our income stream would be that through um, professionals that we employ, we also seek grants from foundations and, and various agencies. And a relatively new area opening up for a lot of nonprofits in higher ed is revenue generation by using our facilities more, more intelligently. So for example, we have very nice residence halls that sit empty for two to three months every year. Can we develop summer camps, conferences, et cetera, that would drive some additional revenue by using those rooms to host conventions or assemblies. So that's the formula that we use in order to um, have enough money to not just get through, but also to reinvest in hiring of faculty and new equipment in sending people off for professional development. Um, but it's, it's pretty squeaky many years, and especially in these post-recession years. With that being said, where, do you, where does one find uh, schooling on operations of a nonprofit? Where, where, what resources do you look for or have found? Well, first of all, right here in our School of Business, there is a Management for Nonprofits course. 
So for example, a person who wants to become an administrator of an organization like this really needs to understand the, the principles that guide the way in which it must account. So for example, there are federal and state regulations that apply to nonprofits that are different than for-profit organizations. So there are principles that either come down through accounting, compliance, legal regulation. Most of us, I would say, actually learn on the job. You become an employee of a nonprofit, you move, if, if you want to, or if, if you're encouraged to, up through various management levels, and at a certain moment in time, you start to understand um, that there are major differences in how we function versus a for-profit entity. And I think many people prefer work in the nonprofits because of the, the human value, the social capital, uh, the moral capital, if you will, in some instances, that an organization brings to building up a society. And so for many people, while they know they may not achieve the levels of financial wealth or security that they would if they worked, for example, for a Fortune 500, the personal um, satisfaction that comes from working in this sector often offsets that for people. And the other fact is that in many nonprofits, um, while you're not perhaps making uh, salaries comparable to for-profit, you're also not expected to live lifestyles that compare to that. And so um, no one expects me, for example, to have five credit cards in my wallet or to belong to the most prestigious golf courses. Um, you know, and, and so there is a kind of social permission um, that says we, in fact, people are a little shocked sometimes if you show up at some of these entities as either a guest or to host an event. So there's a culture to nonprofit work. And don't forget, nonprofits can be uh, gigantic colleges and healthcare systems or tiny little social service organizations sitting in a neighborhood. So uh, it's a pretty vast and uh, multifaceted array. Are, have you utilized a network of nonprofits? Have you utilized anything that puts those entities together to help each other? Absolutely. For example, there are multiple organizations of colleges. Um, some of those focus on small colleges, many of which were founded by a religious entity or have a particular faith-based dimension, either historically or actually. Um, and coming together with peers in those organizations is extraordinarily valuable. It's the networking. You know, I meet somebody and I think, oh my gosh, he's dealing with the very same problem I have with deferred maintenance or HR or early retirements. And so you, you develop a set of peers um, that you can call upon. And most of these organizations are sophisticated in their use of web-based networking for their membership, setting up special mentoring opportunities. So there are multiple organizations of just higher education, mm -hmm. some faith-based, some not. Some uh, relate to the huge land-grant universities versus the small, you know, faith-based residential type of university or college. So those, those organizations are extremely valuable places. And um, I try to make sure that I get at least to one or two of these professional meetings a year because of the invaluable work that they do to keep us abreast. So with that, what, what's vacant? What, what do you see on the landscape of assets and, uh, say, associations or alliances? What would be, 
What, what have you found that's not there? What would you think would be advantageous that you haven't found? Um, actually, I think that what I have not found is necessarily a, a group of peers or a methodology that helps you in very quick time or short time interventions around problem issues. For example, most of these organizations, you meet once a year. Uh, there may be very specialized meetings, for example, for the chief financial officer and the president, and, and that will happen at one organization. Another organization may be running an or, a meeting between foundations and presidents of nonprofits. That's at another time. But I might have a problem today in which I have about four days in which to get my head around it, and it may be a little more difficult to get to a perfect solution. Now, in some instances, I may be my own worst enemy. I may be sitting here feeling a little overwhelmed and thinking, I don't even know who to call, so I don't pick up the phone and make mm. that first call. Mm -hmm. But it feels as though it's sort of um, an emergency room or urgent care right. <laughs> kind right. of situation that is a little harder to access. That's an interesting concept. So almost, uh, like you say, an emergency room situation where you can go 24-7 and say, hey, this is the deal. What do I do? What, right. what, what, right. What's the triage here? How do, how do I proceed or who do you connect right. me with right. to, to find out? Exactly. That's an interesting concept. Right. And I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I think Just, we tend to work, and, and higher ed is notorious for this, sadly, I think, for, for taking far longer to do problem solving and analysis than is the case in a for-profit entity. Mm. And so I think part of our dilemma is that we, we have a culture that doesn't see speed and agility as a value. Interesting. And yet, more and more, the managers of these organizations are in situations where speed and agility is a necessity. Critical. Sure. Do you think that's something that's industry-wide, or is it regional? Is it? Is there any? Do you see educational foundations or um, organizations that are kind of leading that kind of quick turnaround or agility? Well, I think some of the ones that are leading with agility have also flamed out quickly. So, Ooh. to give you an example, two years ago, every time my publications arrived from the Chronicle of Higher Education or a magazine called The Presidency, it was filled with information about MOOCs, Massive Online Open Courseware. Today, nobody's talking about that. And the assumption was they were going to replace colleges and we would just all go down in flames. Now, we're not exactly flourishing a lot of us, but the MOOC has not become the, the preferred solution. I think they are very valuable types of learning opportunities. Um, I think particular for people who have either already completed college or don't have a prayer of going to a, a regular physical place, but um, they clearly haven't proven to be the undoing of the traditional college. I do think they were shot across the bow, saying this is what the future could be mm -hmm. and may well be. But, it, you know, if you jumped into it two years ago and spent a lot of money on it, I suspect that right now you're trying to recover that investment. Mm -hmm. So sometimes chasing the solution or the technology could end up being right. a wounded foot. Exactly. And, and you know, uh, colleges or educational institutions are, are headed by human beings. 
So everybody wants to be cool <laughs> and, you know, best practice and up with, you know, what's new and what's snazzy. Um, so there is a temptation sometimes to get pulled off into something like that. But um, I, would, and I would say we looked at it very closely and we've done some work on it. And I think the work we've done can help us over time. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't translated into a full-blown investment in something like that. It becomes a instructional tool yes. for in a, in, in, in a um, smorgasbord of opportunities right. of ways yes. you can reach that student. Exactly. Yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, a classroom professor can look at a MOOC and say, they've got three units where, you know, the world's greatest physicist is, is going to be lecturing on atomic, you know, subatomic particles. So I want my class to see that great physicist lecture. I'm going to assign that. So it, they do have an incredible utility. I mean, mm-hmm. in today's world, a class sitting here on West State Street in OEN, New York, can be listening to a Nobel laureate in real time if the professor sets up that, or, or even a student sometimes yes. sets up that opportunity. So that's the wonderful part about the technology that is at our service. When you brought up the, the point of technology kind of combating or um, uh, coming up against the institution of how things have been, I think back to when I was a child looking at those ads for correspondence courses where you could learn things, correspondence. And I think really the aptitude for learning has not really changed. All the tools and the mediums have, mm-hmm. and the expectation of quickness has. But uh, there's always been that correspondence school somewhere teaching something. Uh, so that model has always been around for distance learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely now to a point where you now, like you say, you're integrating all these different facets and ways of understanding all to one culminating point. That's an exciting thing. Yep, it really is. And, and in fact, as you talk about the correspondence course, I'm having flashbacks to a group of friends in Africa and Asia who were part of a correspondence course uh, type experience that emanated out of Germany back in the 70s and 80s and its goal was to acknowledging third world countries that didn't have the educational resources of Europe and the United States and creating this correspondence model but what they did is they convened leaders from those countries that they knew were experts in the content and were people magnets Mm. and they got them to be continental and regional coordinators and what happened was that correspondence course actually created an incredible community of participants mm. who sometimes were not physically together, at other times they came together, not unlike what's happening today with distance learning. Mm-hmm. But you could travel to different places in Africa and Asia and meet people saying, oh yes, I've completed you know 10 units, and you could immediately start a conversation. So um, the people factor that went with that correspondence course was, I think, a huge part of why it was so successful. And I suspect that's the dilemma that traditional education faces relative to a digital world. We don't want to give up that human factor because we think it's so critical to lighting the fire in a young person of wanting to learn, wanting to to engage with someone else who they see as a mentor or a, a, a master to use the the guild and apprentice um, mm-hmm. analogy. So 
I, I think that's why sometimes we can appear to be resistant to this change, but I think it is an intelligent resistance, uh, not to simply, uh, you know, sell our birthright, so to speak. I have to bring up a with your with your point here on how they received the message. Uh, as I worked with the military intelligence school in southern Arizona, they had revamped how learning and training was going to happen, and their motto was get rid of the sage on the stage with the guide on the side uh-huh. and make it more participatory. Where do you see learning in 10 years? I think really we are migrating very much to the guide on the side. However, I would also suggest that the sage on the stage, we need to be careful about demoting the importance of the 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 master of content or the master of a discipline who has truly not simply mastered and regurgitates what's already established, but who connects that knowledge to be to create a pathway to new insights, to new discoveries, to new knowledge, to new interpretations. Because that I think is what inspires a field and makes it inspiring. So I think we need to to avoid the dichotomy of let's get rid of that, that's yesterday and old-fashioned and medieval, and let's move to this. Because I can be a guide on the side, but if I'm not guiding to that really excellent level of knowledge, of research, of breakthrough thinking, I'm, I'm simply recycling stale air. With, with the student or with the practitioner. So I would just suggest that we think about is it, it's not an either-or. I like that. You have to integrate both, yeah. and you can't lose one for the right. other. I, I like that very much. What do you think knowledge management is? Well, obviously, as a person who's grown up as a classroom teacher, so you can call me you know, part of the generation that was a sage on the stage, um, I I think of it as a, a generational transmission. And I realize that that has changed tremendously so that, you know, a student no longer needs me to learn about a lot of the content that I have worked to, to master over time. However, I do think that the, the knowledge management requires uh, a kind of gatekeeping and and pathway finding. So, for example, there is a lot of um, information available. It's there's a distinction between information and knowledge, and between knowledge and wisdom. And and there's an old poem by T. S. Eliot: "Where is the information we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in wisdom? Or the reverse: Where's the wisdom we've lost in knowledge?" Where's the knowledge we've lost in information? And we tend to confuse our vocabulary. Mm. So I think that knowledge management requires both a handing on of, you know, past knowledge and learning combined with an openness to set that aside or, or to keep it liberated into the opening to something new. And I think that one of the problems that we have today is a lot of academics were trained to become a master of a field, to hold it close to the vest, not to share their discoveries and their insights because then it would make them irrelevant. 
And so they become the most isolated of persons instead of the most collegial of persons. And so even within a university setting, you find a great difficulty sometimes for people to move into a collaborative model where they need to engage other disciplines and other types of expertise in service to the student. So for me, knowledge management has to migrate from, um, I, I, you know, I've sort of been critical of the stage on the sage metaphor, but I would say I would also be critical of the King Midas of knowledge. It's mine, it's my wealth, I keep it, you don't get it unless I, I bow down to, to bestow something on you like a serf. And I think that we need to come to more of a, um, a service of knowledge. In other words, I'm a service provider, not, not a, a, um, a monopolizer of that knowledge. And, and I think that's the exciting thing that we're being challenged to do today. And I think keeping both the service provision piece alive and well at the same time that we don't become lazy and sloppy <laughs> about really understanding content and really understanding, asking the right questions and always being willing to put aside my latest best answer in favor of the next best answer mm -hmm. and, and to be able to step aside and say somebody else has just come forward mm -hmm. that has bested me yes. and my best uh, contribution to my students is to show my students that I'm excited about that and not defensive and, yes. and trying to demolish that person to build up my own wealth. So what you've just kind of encapsulated is what would be termed a knowledge economy. Mm -hmm. That is a culture that is built to create and sustain a knowledge asset as an organizational piece. Right. Therefore, they're all in the same boat, mm -hmm. and the expectation is sharing will happen. Right. Knowledge will yes. be shared. Yeah. It is a community product. Exactly. So thank you for that. So in parting, do you have any words of wisdom or something you always want to leave at the end of the room when you're walking out as that one thing <laughs> that you want to be noted for? Well, I... I think that the thing I want to be noted for is that I work very hard to break down silos. And while most people wouldn't believe this is the case, I think colleges lend themselves to silos because knowledge has become so specialized over time. And as a result, and, and that's also true on administrative levels. So for example, I'm the person who's in charge of, um, let's say the student life division and am I really going to sit down with the people in the ministries division and, and help them think about how can they help a student who's hurting? We've got a mental health counselor, but do they also need to see someone who's not coming to them with a professional um, mental health degree, but somebody can help them find the spiritual side of what they're going through? That requires trust and openness between those two sets of professionals that I'm not going to try to eclipse your role with that student. Um, I'm not going to prevent that student from going and confiding in you if it would be helpful. This isn't about who does the student love best or, or appreciate most. It's about how many resources can we bring to that student's welfare. So I think that constantly looking for opportunities to get people to join hands instead of just defending turf is, is a big issue 
for me. And I think that it does enrich process. And I've been able to see incredible benefit to our students where we've been able to overcome past uh, divisions of labor that didn't work for the students good. Well, thank you for that, sister. I appreciate your time today. Edwin, it was a pleasure being interviewed by you. Let's do it again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we will. Thank you. Thank you. This program, Because You Need to Know, brings people and their knowledge forward to be shared. I am Edwin K. Morse, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit, tax exempt organization with a charitable purpose. Help us provide knowledge work at www.pioneer-ks.org.